You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Deepak Gupta, who is the managing partner at Blue Bear Ventures, BVB, a seed fund invested in applied biology and sustainable economy startups emerging out of top-tier research universities in the U.S. He's also a startup leadership coach and coaches founders through their entrepreneurial journey. As a trusted advisor, he helps individual and functional enterprise in each faucet of a startup's operations, from C-level support to finance and accounting, from fundraising to culture development, and everything else in between. On today's show, we talk about what milestones should a company hit before going out to raise their A round? What is venture debt? How has deep tech changed in the last 20 years? How does an investor plan out their milestones? And much more. All right, now let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Deepak, I'm super excited for you to be here today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I want to thank Jason, who set up this interview. He's been a longtime fan and a good friend of my wife and myself. And well, with that, Deepak, I've done a lot of research in, on your background. Well, I've known you for years, actually. We met years and years back. But for our audience, don't, you don't need to go into too long. Not, not you know, five minutes. Cause we could be here for the entire episode on this one question. <laughs> but, you know, give us a, a, a little bit of background of your career up until this point. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, from grad school, it was bioengineering. And I've had the, uh, uh, I guess, luck of working at four different startups, uh, all in medical device and biotech. And I worked at Medtronic as well, and many different roles, you know, in terms of sales, marketing, support. After that, I actually went to business school. And I've, since business school, I've worked at three different venture funds. And I'm currently raising my current fund called Blue Bear Ventures, which is a deep tech focused fund. Okay. So with all your experience in venture capitalism, I mean, here in Silicon Valley, a lot of people think, okay, the only source of funding is angels and VCs. And that's it. If I don't, if I don't get angel money, if I don't get VC money, my company just folds. Are there other opportunities? Are there other avenues or what are the different, you know, funded sources out there? Yes. So after business school, as you know, I went to actually a venture debt shop and a venture debt shop is a type of a uh, way to get capital in, but it's a little bit tricky because for venture debt, you really have to go after early stage in terms of getting other VCs, top tier VCs already on your cap table and they won't do you know, the whole amount or whatever you're expecting of the raise itself, but it's a percentage of the raise, usually, you know, 20 to 25% of uh, the venture debt capital is based on how much equity dollars have you raised. Wait, Deepak, let's take a step back. And could you kind of define what venture debt is, or at least give us a, a little bit more description of what venture debt is? Sure. So venture debt is more of a model in which you are actually getting money as similar to a bank. They're lending you money based on either, there are a couple of ways to look at venture debt. There could be something called based on AR, 
you know, in accounts receivable, you could do an AR line, you can do a, you know, inventory line, or you could do a growth line. So what that means is basically taking money if you're doing a growth line is and using it in whatever ways you want to use it for growth line, right? And there are covenants and we could talk more about the covenants and what that looks like. But inventory line, AR line are traditionally based on your AR and a percentage of that. So, you know, as accounts receivable, which means, you know, as the as you receive something, you can take a percentage of that and say, okay, based on that percentage, we can lend you this much money, right? So AR and inventory is fixed. Growth is more about, okay, you've raised $10 million. And coming back to my original point, you know, and it's from good investors, top tier investors, or it could be institutional investors. But out of those $10 million, we're going to lend you $2.5 million of growth capital. Why is it so important that there's that brand name behind that VC that's making that investment? Well, I won't say just a brand name, but more of an institutional investors in terms of board and guidance, you know, because if you're going to lend money similar to a bank, now banks are different, as you know, if you've gotten mortgages and things like that. And there's a lot of stuff that a bank requires. With venture debt, it's a little bit different in startups because for that, you know, you don't have all the covenants and all the requirements. And if you if and you might not have any assets to back up the money being lent to you. So what makes me comfortable as a venture debt provider to really understand will you pay my money back, right? As a startup. So to get around that in venture debt, we really have to look at who are the investors, who are the board, who's managing it. And you won't use my two and a half million dollars, for example, to go buy Ferraris or Lamborghinis or whatever. Right? But NFTs are okay. Or NFTs are, I guess that's okay, right? So, uh, so having said that, it's like, how do we really put some guidelines and covenants and not that you're going to live off our cash. Let's say you run out of $10 million and you only have that $2.5 million. You know, that's going to be a problem, right? Debt is a great model because with debt, you're not diluting equity, right? So sometimes VCs and VC being myself right now, you know, it, it, we don't like debt because, you know, as a venture capitalist, you want to put more equity and more ownership to work in a startup. But from a founder's perspective, it's a great way of getting money and not diluting their existing round or in terms of the capital they have to use. So you're saying that venture debt on the cap table, it won't even be on the cap table, correct? Or- it won't be on the cap table unless they have warrants, but even the warrants are very small compared to the traditional VCs and what the cap table shows. And going back, I mean, it sounded... It was very important to have those VCs that are going to give guidance, going to give support. You have the founders that don't want to dilute the cap table. Those VCs that put money in, are, would they be happy that the founder went out and searched for venture debt? Would they encourage it? Would they not encourage it? What does that dynamic look like? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the board and depends a lot on the venture capital funds. It just depends also on what the money is being used for. Right. If I'm raising $10 million already from equity, what am I using that $2.5 million for that I'm getting in debt? 
and how is that being deployed to get those milestones, right? So in venture capital, let's talk about that. Every 18 to 24 months, you're going to be fundraising and you need to hit certain milestones. Now you raise $10 million. Maybe the VC wants a certain percentage of the company. They want 5%, 10% of the company, right? When they do the investment route, they don't want to dilute it by having more equity dollars come in more than 10 million. In that scenario, it's good to get debt money to make sure you have enough cash to really hit those milestones. And you're, you know, it comes 18 months, you're like, okay, my milestones are delayed by a month, two months, three months, but I do have cash to write it out. Right. So that's the idea behind it. And it was also mentioned for, can it also be used for accounts receivable that venture debt? Why not just use factoring or an outside factor to, to fund that part? I mean, you could, but it's just the cost of capital, right? Uh, in terms of factoring and stuff, sometimes, uh, you know, if you go to Silicon Valley Bank or certain banks, it's cheaper than actually going into uh, the factoring. Or it, it really ma- it depends on the agency. And when is it too early for a company to go out and seek venture debt? So if you're a seed stage fund or pre-seed, chances of you getting venture debt is very small. I mean, if your seed fund is very big with institutional investors, probably. But if it's not a price round either, you know, sometimes it depends. It really depends on the uh, venture debt shop as well. Uh, but I would say Series A or higher are generally the sweet spot is even a Series B or C later on. But I could see, you know, venture debt come in in Series A and go from there. Now, you mentioned seed stage. What milestones should a company hit before going out to raise a seed round? So that's great. So I deal past seven years, you know, venture debt, I, as you know, I've done maybe, what, 12 years ago or 15 years ago. But past seven years, I've been at Berkeley Haas, and I've had the pleasure of working with many entrepreneurs, both at Haas and Berkeley in general, to get ideas from basically a piece of paper or whatever to a certain stage. And the biggest thing we really go after is, you know, the team formation and the market. And yes, people talk about the product market fit and all the different, but everything really fits in a different step, right? And it's the timing of it. So initially, I think the team is really important and the team dynamics is really important. And the second thing you really have to look from now from an investor standpoint and even entrepreneur is how big is the market? What we're really addressing in the market? Sure, you could say, well, we'll get 1% or whatever percent by a certain time frame. But it's like, how early can we really look at the market? Interesting. Okay, so milestones how big or how big the market is. I also wanted to go back a little bit. There's the comment of a price round or not a price round. Mm -hmm. When should one person start looking to, okay, this is going to be a price round. When is it just either a safe note or some type of convertible or that? Great, uh, great question. So a lot of our startups or startups in general, and thank you, thanks to Y Combinator having their safe docs, we, we really tell our startups to go after the safe notes during the pre-seed and seed stage. <clears throat> and the reason is why is because 
you really don't know that well your product market fit. I mean, you have an idea, you have certain customers, you have certain traction. You really don't want to do a price run and give too much of your company to investor at that stage, right? They're, they're basing on the valuation cap. And if you are really doing very well as a startup, you can really see in five years or two years or three years, you know, what is the worth of the company in the future? And that's probably a good time for you to do a price round, you know, in 18, 24 months to say, you know, I really see my product market fit in a couple of years and how I'm getting customers and what I'm building. I think that's the right time to do a price round. Okay. And you also mentioned you're currently at UC Berkeley Haas. Can you talk about kind of what UC Berkeley has been up to in that entrepreneur program, that, that path? Absolutely. So this is a longer time and I'll try to keep it as short as possible. But Tell us stories, go yeah, on, go on. But it started by, you know, you could see a lot of changes happen in entrepreneurship probably in 2010, 11, and 12, I would say. And my two partners uh, at Blue Bear Ventures started an incubator called Citrus Foundry. This was a deep tech incubator that was actually 12 months long. If you look at incubator accelerators, they're usually three months, six months tops. Not many incubators are 12 months. And I'm telling you, for deep tech, that's a great model. And the reason is, it just gives those scientists, entrepreneurs, time to go through and really understand their team dynamics and the milestones and really also understand something called value of death. You really need to position your startup in a way to be out of that valley of death where, you know, the company can die and really get your all your ducks in a row. You know, your milestones, what, what your pitch deck is, how you're actually uh, getting money, what milestones you're trying to hit. So what Citrus Foundry done very well was in those 12 months really hone the skills of a scientist to think like an entrepreneur and go raise money, right? And in about six years or uh, six and a half years, we helped about 48 companies. And those four, 48 companies aggregate raised over $250 million in the first 18 months, right? So it's, it's an incredible story that these scientists, entrepreneurs can go raise the pre-seed seed round and to that amount. And from top tier investors, Founders Fund, Sequoia, really coming into a deep tech accelerator or incubator and looking at those companies. So that 12 month span and going back to a lot of accelerators are just three months, six months, or you know, I've heard of some short as two weeks. Cohorts come and go. Next one comes and goes. If yours is 12 months, what happens to those companies that after three or four months, you're like, you know what? This company's really not going anywhere or, you know, eight months or actually another thing with that is, well, one companies that, you know, aren't going to make it, but they're still got, you know, eight months left in this, yeah. this cohort or two, just your deal flow. Because, well, if you're only seeing one cohort every 12 months, yeah. I guess that's two questions. Let's go with the so, first one. For, so maybe I'll, I'll address both of them. Actually, the cohort was every six months. And it was like the U.S. Senate. So you had a six-month overlap uh, between the previous cohort and the new cohort. So <laughs> I so, think you're assuming we actually know about our, <laughs> our politics that's here. True. Uh, so it's like, 
it's like a place where there's a six month overlap between the two cohorts. So that was very helpful when the new cohort came. The existing cohort can see how how things were done, how far they were along. But to your original question, yes, there were companies that wouldn't make it. And if they weren't the right team or there were issues, you know, they, they would actually drop out of the program. But we kept the numbers low. We, we really went through the selection process and we had VCs at the time in 2013, 2014, all the way, you know, even current to help with really getting the right companies in. And initially, the first couple of years took us time, but as every year and every cohort, you get better and better. But we kept the numbers of startups low. We would try to only help maybe six or eight companies, and maybe you know only six made it or five made it through the program. But that's part of the part of the process. Right? And these companies that are in these cohorts are they? Do they have to be university students? Do they just have yes. to live in Berkeley? How, what's the kind of the criteria? Yeah, so they were all UC Berkeley, or uh, excuse me, UC affiliated. So the Citrus program itself was consistent of four uh, universities uh, in uh, Northern California and UC Santa Cruz, Merced, Davis, and Berkeley. We also had a relationship with UCSF and QB3. So the idea was these founders have to be one of them. Either you could be alumni or a student or a postdoc, PhD, whatever, from one of these universities. And then the, you mentioned that VCs are making introductions. What kind of deal flow is expected for the UC system? I mean, is it pretty, pretty big or is it just you know, scattered drops here and there? If you look at two universities in the country, and this is important, if you look at MIT and Berkeley, just these two universities, there's over a billion dollars or 800 to a billion dollars worth of research coming in every single year, all right? And if you look at Berkeley, you, you know, Lawrence Silvermore, there are just so many different schools within the university and agencies that you can see a lot of research going on. So in terms of technology, in terms of innovation, you can understand there's a lot of patents, a lot of information that's really coming out of these universities. Now, the objective is, how do we find the right people and the right team to really take these ideas from the lab into entrepreneurship? And in that sense, Berkeley has done a great job in the past uh, 10 years. I talked about Citrus Foundry, but there are other accelerators, incubators at Berkeley that are really helping that process. Talking about that process, because from my understanding, it's very difficult getting IP in that intellectual property yeah. out of the university into the private sector to actually build a company around this research, what's done in on the campus. Is that changing? What's happening there? Oh, great question. So Citrus Foundry had a great relationship that any company that got into the Citrus Foundry and developed IP during the Citrus Foundry pro uh, program or after, actually kept the IP. It didn't belong to the university. So this really helped facilitate a lot of these entrepreneurs to come to Citrus Foundry and build their technology and build IP around it. Having said that, you know, Berkeley as a whole has moved away and has gotten a little more friendlier in how to get these IPs really out of the university ecosystem 
into the entrepreneurs because Rich Lines, who is the uh, chief innovation officer at Berkeley, is doing an incredible job of really moving the whole university to entrepreneurship mindset or a change maker. And that, that mindset would be how do we really help the different schools within the university think of this more of a, in a way, to really make money for the school. And they take certain equity and certain dynamics that I can discuss later. But how to build this entrepreneurship ecosystem? How many? Well, one, I definitely want to find out how they're going to make money. So that's part two of this current question. First part is, are other universities in the U.S. or the, the whole UC school system, do you think they're going to adopt something that, like this? I think they're all doing something similar or they're planning to do something. I'm not uh, actually, I don't know, have the whole picture around this, but yeah, I know UCLA is very active in Southern California and other UCs, you know, either through Citrus Foundry or other organizations are pretty active. But I think this is a common theme, not just in UCs, but all over the world, right? We, we talk to universities in Singapore, we talk to uh, universities in France that understand the entrepreneurship mindset. And, you know, just to throw rival Stanford a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, per se, you know, they've been doing this for many decades. And I think they've done a great job of really getting entrepreneurship out of the university and also building the venture capital ecosystem. I think uh, both of those have, they've done a great job. Okay. And then part two, how do the UCs or universities, any university that adopts this, how do they make money from it? How could they be incentivized to really push this forward? Absolutely. So Blue Bear Ventures, my fund, actually, we're called a shared carried fund. And what shared carry means is half of my GP carry goes back to the university as a donation. So there's an there's a incentive for certain funds that are coming out from university and donating back to the university that the university feels like, okay, these, we, have, we have alignment in terms of the universities making donations out of this. For the companies that are going through these university programs, are there any ways or any suggestions on leveraging maybe the alumni network for raising funds or getting in front of potential strategics or potential uh, customers? How can they really utilize these systems that have been built for you know 100 years here yeah absolutely and i think the berkeley is very rich in its alumni base uh actually there are many universities uh, like that and i think for berkeley itself uh, we are trying to tap into that in terms of how do we get the alumni to understand entrepreneurship and come in into certain deals if they're not interested in funds but also come in into certain programs, right? Entrepreneurship programs. How do they give back to the students and how they really build a diverse ecosystem? I think that's important. And the companies that go through your program, once they go through it, are they done? Are they now, okay, we're going to go off on our own? Or do they go to other accelerator programs after? What's a typical next step? So we were kind of fortunate that five of our companies from Citrus Foundry, all five applied to Y Combinator and all five got in, right? For our audience, how impressive is that? Yeah, that's incredibly impressive because Y Combinator, uh, if you haven't heard about it in, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, it's probably the premier accelerator, but probably in the world for that matter, right? And in terms of 
the number of unicorns they have had in past, you know, since 2008, uh, I can't even keep count. But someone told me every cohort, they have a unicorn pretty much. So, you know, I'll let the numbers speak for themselves. But for coming back to your original question, I think the objective is for a lot of our companies, if they're really early, of course, going to another accelerator helps. And there are many great accelerators out in the Bay Area. You know, Alchemist is another one and there are a couple of other ones. But some of these companies just go raise a seed round or Series A. They go from a traditional path. And for those traditional paths, you're a VC network, your syndication. As somebody at Berkeley, we'd like to help our founders meet different uh, VCs and go even that route as well. Now, you didn't go into the detail, and I'm sure our audience is, is really curious. What's the secret of getting five for five into Y Combinator? What was this? What's the secret behind it? I think it's just building the company in terms of the team, the story, as well as trying to address the market size, right? And that's uh, coming back to Citrus Foundry and even Blue Bear Ventures for that matter. These founders are really mission driven. They're very coachable. The one thing with scientists, entrepreneurs, you can understand if I've done science for seven years or eight years to get my PhD. I'm very opinionated and I do have an ego that goes with it. But a lot of these scientists, you really have to find the coachable ones and really they can build and take feedback. And we can learn that early, even before the program they get into. Can they take feedback? How do they react to the feedback? What is the team dynamics? If you really get the team and the market right, I think Y Combinator is definitely open to understanding that. Going back, how, what percentage would you say of PhD candidates or people that are coachable versus not coachable? <laughs> you know, that, that uh, you should ask probably my partner that because he probably has uh, dealt more with that. But, you know, it, it really, every year it changes. One thing I, I do want to address is entrepreneurship in general, as you can understand, Silicon Valley has been around for, you know, for so many decades. But at Berkeley, it's really picked up in the last 10 to 15 years. And there are most, more scientists, most PhDs now thinking about entrepreneurship as a route, where 15, 20 years ago, even before that wasn't the case. If I'm a PI at a good lab, right, this is uh, my objective for my students would be for them to go to another university and open a lab, open another PI lab, right? And that's how I would measure success. Deepak, what's PI? Yeah, PIs are user principal investigators, the ones that are running the lab, and they're the, the professors that are doing the research. So the PIs are the ones that are really going out after the grants from NIH, from DARPA, from different agencies to fund their lab. Okay, we said deep tech a couple of times here. <laughs> From my understanding, is it's the greatest buzzword of, hey, what does your company do? Oh, we're deep tech. I don't need to, you know, I can't say anything else or ask any other questions because I'm confused because I have no idea what it is. What is deep tech? So before we jump into deep tech, let's talk about what we're really trying to address, right? So I think you probably had previous people come on your show and talk about impact investing and really go after impact. So Think of deep tech as three different buckets for Blue Bear Ventures, and then I'll go more into deep tech, right? 
So the three different buckets that you should really go after is, is this company really going to make an impact? And what is this impact, whether in health or environment? That's one form of deep tech that you have to understand. It's like, is this company going to make an impact? And usually, yes, you probably, it's a, if it's a pre-seed or seed company, you probably need a PhD or some kind of incredible technology that's going to change the world, right? That's the idea behind that. Second thing is, is this going to be a billion dollars in revenue? Something humongous in terms of changing world. I mean, if you could invest in Genentech, that's going to be, you know, at seed level, pre-seed level, that's an incredible story, right? The third thing you really have to focus at Blue Bear is really going after what is the team? Why are we the right people that are looking at deep tech? And why does terms of our relationships, what we have done in the past 10 years? So a combination of that really goes after deep tech. But coming back to your original question on deep tech, deep tech could be something that is really changing the world in terms of health and environment. So you could talk about sustainability, you could talk about so many different facets within the deep tech buzzword. Uh, and if you hear something like AI machine learning, that's only a tool, right? That's not really deep tech as much as the tool itself. Okay, so AI machine learning, deep tech, we keep hearing, it seems every year there's different buzzwords, different things going on. How is the whole entrepreneur ecosystem, how has that changed over 20 years? And then Go back to your fund a little bit, your focus. Sure. So I think in the past 20 years, if you looked at the late 90s, early 2000s, let's start with the late 90s. And if you had a PowerPoint deck and you had a slide, you could probably get funding based on that. And I think what you see today is to get funding, you really need more than just a PowerPoint deck. You need some kind of product market fit or you need to understand what the market is. You have the right team. You need some kind of an execution to really get money today than it was in 20 years ago. Because you need to understand as an entrepreneur, this is more of a dating process with venture capital and with angel investors, anybody. They need to trust you and build a relationship to be able to give you money. And sometimes, you know, if, if I met you for the first time and fall in love with you, boom, I'll give you money. But sometimes it takes, you know, three months, six months, a year to get money. But that's part of the process. That's something people just have to go through. Some of us do play hard to get. <laughs> also in your career, you've had a little experience with SPV, special purpose vehicles. Yes. And that is one thing that happens here in the Valley that I'm not sure we've ever covered on this show of, you know, raising through for one company through an SPV. Yes. Could you dive in a little bit deeper into that topic? So special purpose vehicles, the objective of that is actually looking at a certain company and getting your investors comfortable with that company and what the company is doing. So sometimes an individual or an investor would not be comfortable investing in a fund or early stage at a seed or series A deal. But when it comes into series B or C and there are certain VCs or certain brand names or certain milestones that the company has hit, then the investors like, you know, I would love to get into that deal and be with Sequoia or any top tier investor. Can I get in? How can I get in? Hey, Blue Bear Ventures, you have invested in seed round. You probably have 
certain kind of rights or maybe a relationship that you can leverage to have a certain amount of money in that round. And this is a great way for certain individuals to invest into that round. So you're using the SPV as kind of almost a backdoor to get into something you might have not had the opportunity to get in, leveraging your network, leveraging your connections. Absolutely. So for individuals or for family offices, for any investor for that matter, you know, SPV, investing into SPV is a great way to get into later stage deals. How do people find out about opportunities <coughs> to invest into SPVs? Could they talk to investment bankers or someone? I'm just wondering. Technically, uh, you know, AngelList sometimes does syndicates and you could do uh, get on AngelList and look into the syndicates. But you should really talk to a lot of these early stage venture capital funds and really somebody who's managing less than $100 or $50 million. Chances are they're probably doing some kind of SPVs. Not all do, uh, but you know, that's more of a trying to figure out which ones are. If you have any questions on that, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I am a mid-market investment banker. We do come across these quite a bit. So please reach out. Always happy to have a conversation. Sorry, Deepak. I had to do a shameless plug there. Of course. Let's continue. Okay. We talked about milestones for startups going through an accelerator, going through a cohort. Do VCs have milestones that they're looking to hit? So. You know, venture capital, what's the objective of venture capital? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe take a tangent and come back to this. When you looked at venture capital in 1970s and 80s, it was all about risk and de-risking it, right? You look at Fairchild, you look at you know, Intel, you look at the traditional venture capitalists. They put a lot of money into companies and said, we might not get it back. We could, but we are going to take a chance on the team. And we're going to take a chance at the technology. Now, coming forward to it, there are a lot of venture funds that are doing what I call growth equity, which is very de-risk in terms of, you know, a product market fit, you know where they're selling, and you're just giving them money to grow that idea or region or whatever it is. Traditional venture capital, there aren't too many venture funds that are doing that at pre-seed level where they're really betting on the technology and betting on the people, right? Blue Bear is one of them, and there are a couple of other deep tech funds that do that. But if you can come back to the roots of venture capital and really go after investing in terms of its nascent in excuse me, in terms of its nascent stage, that would be coming back and really, you know, putting your money on the technology. We're not talking gambling. Don't get this wrong with seed funds and gambling. It's more about looking at something early enough, validating the technology and team, and then putting money behind it. And also, what's exciting you for 2022, maybe even 2023? Yeah, so 2022 and 2023, I think there's a lot of changes coming in. And we could talk about something called synthetic bio and all the stuff that's going on synthetic bio. But you know, one thing that we all deal with is probably the environment and the changes that we all feel, especially in California in terms of fires. So it's like, what are the technologies, emerging technologies that are coming out from the university research? Again, going back to those billion dollars, where is the money going and what is the research going in 2022, 2023 that will make it viable for these technologies to go out? 
Whoa, you said synthetic bile. You got to elaborate a little bit more. Deep tech was cool. Now synthetic bile. Tell us. Synthetic bio, the definitions that I like to define is more about how do you look at biology from an engineering concept. So engineering concepts could be any kind of design implementation and testing that you're going through and looking at biology. So and trying to look at something in biology that could go even faster and faster. So if you look at the genome project that happened 20 years ago, it took billions and billions of dollars, right? At a couple of billion dollars, many different schools to do the human genome. Now you could probably do the same human genome for a couple of thousand dollars. So the technology, what it used to take 20 years ago and the technology what's taking right now has dramatically changed. And the same concept in biology, we could talk about gene editing. You know, it's a basically read, write, of uh, how do you read a DNA, how do you write to a DNA, and how do you change a DNA? So it's like, can we really go after these new technologies and make a big impact? That's fantastic. And we've mentioned the name a few times. I'm not sure if our listeners caught it. Blue Bear Ventures. Is it because it's cold at UC Berkeley? (laughs) How'd you come up with that name? Oh, great question. So bears is Obviously, the mascot of state of California, but also UC Berkeley, bears. And blue is actually one of the colors of UC Berkeley. So that's how blue bears came about. Oh, fantastic. And right before we wrap up, do you have any story you can share with, maybe you can leave the name out, of a company that you've worked with that's gone through your accelerator or before, just any type time in your career, just doesn't have to be... The best company, the worst company, some of your projects, do you have a story to share? Absolutely. One of our companies actually did uh, 10 years of DARPA research. And if you don't know what DARPA is, it's a government agency that's doing really cutting edge. DARPA came out with the World Wide Web, all the internet stuff. So they did 10 years of DARPA research before they started the company. And the company was one founder from Berkeley, one from uh, UC Boulder, and one from MIT. These three people came to the Berkeley campus. They got into Citrus Foundry. And the, uh, the, the technology they have is a chip design that is using light instead of wires. So it's supposed to be 1,000 times faster to send information and 10 times more in terms of less energy being used. So this technology has gone through three different rounds. And they're at Series C now. We invested in pre-seed seed round. And they were already worth about half a billion dollars. So in terms of the potential of technology really changing, you know, and you can see with the chip shortage, where can this chip be really applied? You know, we could talk about uh, self-driving cars. We could talk about, you know, in terms of mobile phones. We could talk about so many different areas where this chip can be useful. So that's a story. Well, that's perfect because you're leading up to next week's episode where we have the Intel Alumni Network back here on the on the show where we're interviewing Ted, who uh, was one of the founders of, uh, well, I don't want to spoil the, the episode, so stay tuned for next week. But Deepak, with that, I'm super excited for all the time you gave to us this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. If anyone wants to find out more information about Blue Bear Ventures and what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? You could uh, actually contact me on Twitter. It's dgupta.sf. Or you could email me at deepak.gupta at bbv.io. 
Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. I want to thank Jason who made the introduction. I also want to thank our listeners. And while you're listening to this episode multiple times, please give us that five-star review on iTunes and any other social media platform. Share it. And anyone out there, if you're looking for that mid-market investment banker, focus mergers, acquisition, growth capital, secondaries, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, write a note in the show notes. Um, but with that, I'm super excited for next week's episode. And this week's episode was fantastic. So Deepak, thank you again for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.